Welcome to The Lawyerist Podcast, a series of conversations about law practice. Each week, we talk with legal entrepreneurs and innovators about building a successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are your hosts. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 180 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Ashley Cox about onboarding new employees at your firm. Today's podcast is brought to you by LawPay, Ruby Receptionists, New Law Business Model, and Law Clerk. We really appreciate their support, and we will tell you more about them later in the show. So as I'm sure you noticed, after 180 (laughs) episodes of our podcast, there is a new intro voiceover at the beginning of the show, which is very exciting. For our first 180 episodes, I kindly referred to our voiceover artist as our Martha Stewart voice. (laughs) Um, And starting with this episode, the new voiceover intro is from my wife, Kelly. I feel like that's kind of an Easter egg for the dedicated podcast listeners that they will know that it's your wife now. Indeed. She has been a guest on the show. She is the host of her own successful legal podcast, Clienting. So she's known to many of you. Yeah. uh, And since you mentioned it, Kelly's podcast, Clienting, is out there and you can find it on the app store of your choice. And it's worth a listen. It's little bite-sized episodes about legal marketing. And hey, thanks, Kelly. Really appreciate you doing our intro. Indeed. Hi, Kelly. (laughs) I also wanted to send a quick reminder that we have a new cohort of the Lawyerist Lab planning to launch on August 1st. So if you've been hearing about all of the cool things happening in the Lawyerist Lab and you're curious about joining, you've still got a couple of weeks to submit an application to join join that August 1st cohort of class two of the Lawyerist Lab. And I suppose if you join on August 1st, you'll also have the opportunity to attend LabCon at the beginning. LabCon is the new name for something we've talked about quite a bit in the past, TBD Law. And so if you've heard about that conference and you're interested, joining Lab is the fastest way to get to LabCon in August. On this week's Lawyerist Lens video, I talked to a few lawyers at a conference about some of the biggest challenges they face in their firms. You can find Lawyerist Lens on YouTube, and when you find it, please subscribe. You'll help us out by helping others find the show. So now we've got a brief conversation with Kristen Tyler from Law Clerk, and then we'll jump into my conversation with Ashley. Hi, I'm Kristen Tyler. I've been an attorney in Las Vegas for about 13 years now, practicing in trust and estates, and have recently unveiled a new effort that I've been working on along with two co-founders called Law Clerk. If you want to check us out, the website is lawclerk.legal. And in a nutshell, what we do is we help connect busy attorneys with our network of freelance lawyers that they can hire on demand for project work when they need an extra set of hands around the office. Hi, Kristen. Thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Sam. So you are big on using law clerks or freelancers, freelance lawyers, as a way to improve work-life balance. So how do you see that working? Well, I think that thanks to technology and tools like law clerk, and there's a lot of them out there, there are a lot of new ways that attorneys can think about their workflow that can in turn help enhance their work-life balance if there's such a thing as that for an attorney. And certainly I know a lot of attorneys joke at the thought of work-life balance, but it's something that a lot of us are striving for more and more. And whereas I think past generations of lawyers have lived to work and, you know, many of them would joke about someday dying at their desk. I think that different generations of lawyers 
want more than that and they want to work to live and they want more than what's happening just inside the office, especially on their weekends. And so there's a lot of tools and resources out there for attorneys to help find that. So we struggle with how to define work-life balance because balance makes it sound like a teeter-totter where it's like 50-50 or something. But ours is, look, everybody gets to define it in their own way. And if you feel like you're not getting enough life in your balance, then you need to rebalance. And if you're not feeling like you're getting enough work in your balance, then you need to rebalance. So you can kind of decide for yourself. So let's say I'm an overwhelmed lawyer. How does a freelancer help me? If you're an overwhelmed lawyer, especially if you're a solo practitioner or if you're at a very small firm, then there's probably times that you're in your mind or with your coworkers jokingly saying, I wish I could clone myself. And Mm -hmm. if someone has figured that out, please call me and tell me how to do it. But in the (laughs) meantime, for the rest of us, I think that during those times where you find yourself wishing you could clone yourself, it should be a big red flag to you that you need to reevaluate your staffing and your needs around the office. And there's lots of different ways to solve that problem. You know, have you reached a new threshold of business where it makes sense to bring another body into the actual office space to hire an associate or a full-time paralegal, whatever that may be? awesome. And that's, if you're feeling that level of overwhelmed all the time, maybe that's what you need. Maybe it's going to the local contract lawyer in your community that you sometimes associate with and hire to help you when you're feeling overwhelmed. And that's a great resource for a lot of attorneys too. But thankfully, like I said earlier, with technology and all of the resources we have today, there are a lot of other options, be it appearance counsel. There's a ton of companies out there that are offering attorneys to go to court for you. If that's something you don't enjoy doing, or if it takes up too much of your time, you know, appearance counsel is a growing trend in this so-called spectrum of alternative legal services. That's a great resource for a lot of attorneys. And like I mentioned earlier, of course, with our company, being able to connect people with freelance lawyers all over the country is another way to expand their horizons, especially if maybe they haven't found a couple of other attorneys in their local area to hire as contract lawyers when they need help. So there's a lot of resources out there when people are feeling like, gosh, I wish I could clone myself. So how do you get somebody up to speed quickly, though, so that you're able to just absorb the expansion of your workload and not turn yourself into a manager and spend the same amount of time managing that you'd otherwise spend doing the work? That's a great question. And I've got a few tips and tricks to hopefully help people take that leap and give it a try. You know, first off, I think that you need to really take the time at the forefront to set your expectations, to make it crystal clear what you're looking for, what you want the end result product to look like, and how they should get to that point. You know, we've seen attorneys do that a lot of different ways. We've seen attorneys that like to take handwritten notes during client meetings, scan the notes in and send them to their freelance lawyer or their contract lawyer to help them understand exactly what they're looking for in the work. We've seen attorneys even do audio files. If you can talk faster than you can type, which I think most of us probably can, you could upload an audio file of the instructions to your freelancer. That's a big time saver. Oh, that's clever. Yeah, we've seen a lot of really interesting uh, techniques like that. But communication is key and you have to be realistic with yourself too. Like if you think that you're going to be able to hire a contract lawyer or freelance lawyer and just say, hey, I need you to file a complaint against um, Acme Company and include these three causes of action and leave it at that, you're not going to get what you want back. You need to invest a little more time at the forefront to set them up for success to reduce your management time and your review time at the end of the project. But there again, I think anyone who thinks they're going to hand something off to someone, especially the first time you work with them and get it back without having to put your own touch on it, that's just not realistic. You have to expect to still do some work on the actual project yourself. But overall, that time should be significantly less than what it would be if you did the actual work yourself. 
So real quick, it also works the other way too, right? If you feel like you're not getting enough work in your work-life balance, you can freelance yourself and plug yourself into a system like Clockwork. Absolutely. You know, I talk to lawyers from all over the country and a lot of them, you know, when we're talking about the concept of law clerk, they, they kind of whisper, well, well, what if I want to be a freelancer? And there's a lot of underemployed, underutilized legal talent across the entire country. And so this is a great way if people are feeling stressed in their personal life, if they are wishing they had a few more dollars in the bank to help do some fun things with their family, if they're feeling the stress from not being as, you know, maybe busy in their practice as they want right now, they can pick up some extra work, which is really key. You know, Sam, I don't think it's any secret that the legal profession is a tough profession. And, you know, we have some of the highest rates of depression, suicide, highest levels of addiction and alcohol abuse in particular. And a lot of that has to do with the stresses we feel as attorneys. And if giving people this idea, along with all of the others that are out there in this whole spectrum of alternative legal services, if we can help give people more tools that are easily accessible to help them either pick up more work when they're slow or help them manage and delegate out some work when they're super busy is a win for the profession, in my opinion. So if you'd like more information on how to incorporate freelancers into your practice, go to lawclerk.legal slash lawyerist to learn more. Thanks, Kristen. Thanks, Sam. Good talking to you. Hi, I'm Ashley Cox, the founder at Sprout HR, where I help you hire, train, and lead your happy and profitable team. My goal is to help small business owners reduce their learning curves, limit their liability when it comes to growing and leading a team, and allow them to do so with more confidence and ease. Hi, Ashley. Welcome back. And it's back because you and I talked at length about hiring in episode 158, and we kind of left it hanging and we said we'd do a second episode, and so here we are to talk about onboarding. So welcome back. Thanks so much, Sam. It's a pleasure to be back, and I'm excited to continue our conversation. We had such great conversation last time about hiring your team, and this is the next logical step, and one I think that a lot of folks skip over or they don't do as thoroughly as they can, so I'm thrilled that we're able to talk about this today. And But before we do, I, I thought I heard in there, uh, when last we talked, you were building Sprout as a outsourced HR, and I think I heard that you're pivoting and changing a little bit where your focus is going to be. So take a minute to tell us what that's going to be. Absolutely. I'm really excited about this pivot that I'm taking in my business because I've been focusing on a lot of different things. Um, but what really brings me a lot of joy and where I feel like I'm able to make the biggest impact is to help new and sometimes struggling leaders navigate the world of being in a leadership role. A lot of times small business owners start and they're the do-it-all person. And then as they start to transition into that leadership role or, or out of the day-to-day -day grind and into the CEO shoes, there's a lot of opportunity for getting things off track and losing momentum and expecting your team to know how to do more than they really do. And so I'm really excited to, to pivot into this um, world of, of really helping leaders become the most effective that they possibly can be because I see too many small business owners struggle with this transition. And I feel like there's a huge opportunity here to help people do it more seamlessly and with more confidence and, and to really create more momentum instead of losing the momentum that they've gained. That feels really close to home to me because I know like a lot of solos in particular, as they, they make their first hire and they make their first hire with the idea that, okay, this person will take a bunch of job duties that I don't want to do. 
and then I'll be able to focus on the stuff that I get to bill, you know, 300 bucks an hour for, and everything will be mm-hmm. more profitable. And I think there isn't enough for, I, there, for me, I'm speaking really from experience here. I didn't take the time to recognize that I was in hiring that first person. I was changing my role from somebody who was doing the work to somebody who was managing the workers. Yeah. And I didn't take the time to learn how to lead at that point. And so um, that makes a lot of sense to me, especially for small businesses. The entrepreneur who starts it is not the leader who takes it to the next level. Absolutely. And a lot of times small business owners come from backgrounds where they've been the gopher or the worker bee, or Mm -hmm. they're not really in a position where they've had that leadership experience or even been in in a position where they've gotten any sort of leadership development or training. And so I see a huge disconnect there that's causing businesses to struggle or fail as they start to scale and grow to that next level. So um, it's good to hear that that's uh, something that that you also see as being a need out there. Um, but I'm sorry you had to struggle with that alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, eventually I woke up to the, to the challenge and stepped up. But well, let's, talk about, let's talk about onboarding. It's, it's really a part of leading and managing, but it also mm-hmm. uh, flows naturally from our last conversation. What is onboarding? Why do we use that word and what do we mean by it? Yeah, so it, it seems kind of like a corporate term, right? Onboarding totally. seems so you know, corporate is like, ah. um, but it's really the best word to describe. Um, creating your new hire experience, I guess, is really maybe more of a, a fun small business type of way to phrase that. Um, but it's more than just a checklist of paperwork to complete on somebody's first day, which is what a lot of people think onboarding is. It's the most important impressions and experience that your company will have with your new hire. And guess what? You only get one shot at it. So onboarding is basically helping your new hire get acclimated to your culture, understand their role and responsibilities, help set goals for them so that way they know exactly how they're contributing to the workforce. Um, Because the number one thing people want is to be able to have meaningful work. And so when we don't have a strong onboarding process and we're not setting those goals and helping them understand how they contribute to the overall success of our company, then there's a real big disconnect between helping them understand that and them feeling like they're able to um, have a meaningful work experience. So basically it's everything and anything that takes place within the first year of an employee's time with your company. Oh, really? A lot of people okay. think it's one day or one week, but it's really that whole first year. Gotcha. Um, and you dropped culture in there, and we talked about culture when it comes to hiring, which obviously if it doesn't come over to management, you're going to have a real disconnect there on your approach. Um, but I, if, if listeners are curious to hear more about culture, I really dug deep on it with Paul Spiegelman in podcast uh, number 160. So um, that's another one to hit up, which was soon after Ashley's last appearance. So I'm going to send people over there so that we don't have to wade back into the culture um, issue. But onboarding is about a year long. And you, you talked about how important it is, and I think you've got some actual data on why it's so important. Yeah, you know, the Department of Labor did a study in 2017 that said, 69% of employees are more likely to stay with a company for more than three years after a great onboarding experience. Hmm. Okay, I know that's a lot to take in, but the majority of people are going to stay around for three years or longer if they have a really great experience 
joining your company, meaning they're getting the proper training. They know and understand their roles and responsibilities. They're integrating with the culture. However, Gallup found that only 12% of employees strongly agree that their company does a great job at onboarding new employees, which is a huge disparity. Yeah, no, that's a big difference. Yeah, so, you know, there's a lot of room for improvement, I guess is the, <laughs> is the best way to say that. You know, and especially as small businesses, we don't have the time or the resources to just be hiring and losing employees, you know, every 6, 8, 10, 12 weeks because they don't stay around long. If an employee doesn't have a great experience, they're gone within the first 60 days. Um, so you're spending all this time, energy, resources, effort, uh, and momentum in your business trying to fix the problem in the wrong way. And so the way to avoid having to hire over and over and over and keep losing employees is to really give them an exceptional experience right off the bat. I'm sure a lot of um, firms out there listening to this podcast have a really great onboarding experience for their clients. And this is the same process, is that we want to make sure that our new hires have a really great onboarding experience. Otherwise, they're going to have the same sort of discontentment. They're going to be frustrated. They're not really going to know what to expect or what's expected of them. And so just like a client would leave us if they have a, a shoddy experience uh, working with us, our new hires will leave us as well. One of the goals of hiring is not to do any more of it for a while. <laughs> you know, exactly. so, uh, so bringing people <laughs> it's, it's on. A big process. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we, you know, lawyers is 10 people and every time somebody moves on and we turn somebody over, it's a, it's a disruption. We, we have to shuffle mm -hmm. people around, figure out how to get work done, um, and then bring somebody on and get them up to speed. And, and it's, I'd rather not do it. Um, it it's, yeah. it's great to keep people in their role who are doing a good job at what they're doing. So um, that makes yeah. sense. Well, let's start talking about best practices. How do we start thinking about onboarding? Uh, even similar to hiring it before we start doing it, we actually have to plan it out. So oh my gosh, yes. Everything that you are going to do when it comes to your new hires, you need to have a preparation and a plan for. I've worked in companies before who you would think kind of had their stuff together. Um, and they will have times where a new hire comes in and nobody knew they were supposed to be there that day or knew that they were coming. And so that first impression probably tastes pretty bad in that new hire's mouth, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so really having a plan and a preparation for their arrival is going to be key to making sure that you get started off on the right foot. It's and that vague, I like always, it always feels so bad to walk into a place that you're, you know, you're supposed to be there, but you walk in and it's totally vague about where you're supposed to go or what you're supposed to do. Yeah. Like we're doing summer camps for my kids and every week it's a different onboarding experience. And I never know if you walk in and you're like, what am I supposed uh, to be doing here? Yeah. Yeah. That's the most awkward thing, you know, and they're already nervous, right? Mm -hmm. You're already nervous coming to a new job. You don't know if you dress the right way. Maybe this culture is a little more casual and laid back and you came in in a three-piece suit. Maybe it's a little more dressed up and you thought it was, you know, jeans and a polo shirt sort of <laughs> And, you know, so, so having that pre-arrival plan as well and letting them know, hey, you know, this is what you can expect on your first day. Um, please arrive at this time, go to this place, talk to this person. Or if it's a virtual team member, you know, we'll be having a live Zoom call at 8 a.m. So that way we can, you know, get the day kicked off together. Um, but just really setting the, the day for them and making sure that they know what's coming up and what to expect and that anybody who is a part of their new hire onboarding experience that first day also knows. You know, working with remote people is becoming more and more common and we, we do it. And I'm wondering what 
I mean, it seems like onboarding and especially that first day experience for a remote worker is extra challenging. What are some things that you can do to, I mean, I, I've interrupted you in the middle of, you know, actually planning the first day for a person who's going to be in the office. But as we talk about that, like, let's talk about remote workers too. That's becoming more and more common, even among lawyers. Absolutely. Well, it, it can be a really big challenge because a lot of people think that it needs to be a completely different process, but we just have to tweak the process just a little bit to make it work for our remote workers. So where you might come in and have the employee meet with you first thing in the morning in person in your office, if you have um, an on-site team member, just translate that over to let's do a virtual video call. Um, let's get on Zoom. Let's go through the same things that we might go through if we were sitting down with them in person. But instead of doing it on the phone or just doing it by email, let's actually get FaceTime with them. The more FaceTime you can get with your new hires that are virtual, the more you'll be able to create that connection right off the bat and the more that they'll feel like they're really a part of your company and not just some random person floating out on the internet that everybody forgets about every now and then. Mm -hmm. So really just kind of translating that, you know, sending them the pre-onboarding plan and just saying, hey, on day one, here's what you can expect. We're going to hop on Zoom. And then after that, we're going to have, you know, a team Zoom meeting where you can meet everybody else and, and everybody can kind of log into the system and, and get some FaceTime with the new hire. Um, a lot of times I suggest creating a, a really warm welcome by having a team lunch or taking the new hire out to lunch. Well, that's kind of impossible with a virtual team member, right? So maybe it's sending them a gift card to take themselves out to lunch. Like, hey, take yourself out to lunch. We'd love to treat you today on us. And then after lunch, we're going to continue with X, Y, and Z. Um, so they'll still kind of get that same experience, but they won't feel completely disconnected because they didn't get that FaceTime they so need. This is kind of cheesy, but also probably kind of awesome. Um, I've seen companies that on the first day, they have all the staff turn out and like, you know, have a cheering line as the new employees walk into the office for their first day. Um, I mean, it's mm -hmm. a little harder to do that on Zoom, but not impossible to have like, let's everybody come welcome the new employees. It's kind of cheesy, but it's a lot better than walking into an office and like feeling like you're interrupting people who are have their heads down in their computers. But. Absolutely. You know, I mean, a lot of the things that people do for team building or for, um, you know, employee recognition and celebration can definitely come off as being a little cheesy. But you know what? I'd rather go to a cheese-filled environment than one where everybody <laughs> was miserable all day long. It depends on if it's <laughs> sincerely cheesy or not, I guess. Um, so, true. So true. having a, it sounds like having an... Yeah, exactly. It sounds like having an actual agenda for the first day. I, letting Letting somebody know what they're going to be doing on that day. And I suppose making sure that they have breaks, um, don't, don't make Absolutely. them run around nonstop, but having an agenda for the first day would be comforting to me to know what I'm supposed to be doing and when, where I'm supposed to be and what I'm, who I'm talking to and all. Yeah. Even having an agenda for that whole first week, even if it's not hour by hour, because that could be really overwhelming for you and the new hire, mm -hmm. having blocks of time I have seen works really, really well. Like, you know, from eight to 10, this is your time to meet with this person or from 10 to 12, this is your free time to read through some of the material that we've already given you or shared with you, explore our website, um, you know, kind of start to familiarize yourself with our company and with our culture. Uh, so it doesn't all have to be hour by hour. I definitely recommend day one be more hour by hour because you, you want to make sure that they know 
kind of exactly what's going on all day long. But the rest of the week, give them some blocks of time to meet people or to decompress and have a little personal time. You definitely don't want to dominate their entire week, hour by hour by hour, every single day, or they're going to be overwhelmed and exhausted. You're going to be overwhelmed and exhausted, and it's going to be a pretty intense experience by the end of the week. So we need to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. And when we come back, I want to keep talking and I want to pick up on a couple of things you mentioned there about varying the, the workload that you're giving to brand new people and how you bring them up to speed on things like process and paperwork and all that. So we'll be right back. Did you know that attorneys who accept online payments get paid 39% faster on average than those using traditional payment methods? With LawPay, the only payment solution offered through the ABA Advantage program, you can accept client payments online, via email, or in person. No equipment needed. Visit lawpay.com lawyerist to sign up and get your first three months free. Trust the only payment solution developed for attorneys and recommended by 47 state bars. LawPay. Support for today's episode comes from Ruby Receptionists, dedicated to helping you grow your practice one happy caller at a time. From their offices in Portland, Oregon, Ruby's remote receptionists work in tandem with their innovative technology to answer your calls live with your custom greeting, transfer calls through to you when and where you want, collect new client intake and messages, make follow-up calls, and more. Delighting your callers in English and Spanish, just like an in-house receptionist at a fraction of the cost. Ruby integrates with Clio, Rocket Matter, and Lexicata, as well as the contacts and calendar on your cell phone to easily integrate into your workflow. Ruby can host your local phone number or provide you with one, giving you the opportunity to make dual use of your phone. Call clients using your office or personal number as you please via the Ruby mobile app. For over 15 years, thousands of attorneys have been turning rings into relationships with Ruby receptionists. To learn more, call 844-715-7829 or visit callruby.com slash lawyerist2018. Alexis Neely has been training lawyers on the new law business model she created to build her million-dollar law practice for more than 10 years. Over that time, she saw that some lawyers were hugely and immediately successful with it, and others spun their wheels, never getting anywhere. Just recently, she decided to figure out what made the difference. After reviewing all of her clients' successes and failures, as well as her own, she identified five shifts that were the common denominator among all the lawyers who today have high six- and seven-figure law practices they love. To learn what she discovered and apply it to your life and law practice, go to newlawbusinessmodel.com lawyerist. Hey, one more thing before we get back to the conversation. If you haven't already taken the small firm scorecard and you are a solo or small firm lawyer, do it now at go.lawyerist.com scorecard. Look, you listen to this podcast, so you must know the practice of law is changing in important ways. And sooner or later, you are going to feel the effects of those changes in your practice if you aren't feeling them already. So what's your plan? If you are like most of the lawyers we've met over the years, even if you understand the trends shaping the past, present, and future of law practice, you probably don't have a plan. You may not even be sure where to start. So that's why we put together the Small Firm Scorecard, to help lawyers understand what they need to do to position their firm to be successful in the future. It's a free self-assessment. 50 questions for small firms, 40 for solos. The questions cover your goals, strategy, systems, marketing, client service model, finances, and people and staffing. It only takes about 10 minutes, and at the end, you'll know exactly what you need to work on based on your own assessment of how you're doing on each item. Like I said, it's free, it takes about 10 minutes, and you'll end up with a to-do list to prepare your firm for the future. So take it now at go.lawyerist.com scorecard. Okay, we're back. So, Ashley, I heard you sort of allude to a few things in there, but sprinkling in the mundane stuff, which may or may not be important, but so if you're a really process-oriented company, how do you avoid 
having that first person like show up, do some paperwork and then bury themselves in procedures manuals for a week. How do you actually like get people up to speed on all the stuff they need to know about how the company works without overwhelming them and making it a boring first week where they don't actually see people? Oh gosh, I think we've all been there, right? <laughs> That's the worst onboarding experience. Um, yeah, so you definitely want to take a look at what do they need to learn immediately versus what's more long-term. Because what I've seen in the past is that a lot of times small business owners have a hard time differentiating between what's important and critical now and just trying to overload their employees with every single thing they've ever known or learned or created about their business. You know, these are our babies. We are running these businesses. We are passionate about them. And we think every single thing is important. Well, it's not to a new hire. So helping, you know, helping them understand these are the important things about your role or about the company will help you kind of disperse that out. And like I said, the onboarding process is a year-long or at least a full business cycle process. So they don't need to know every single thing in day one or week one, uh, but it'll give you things to work towards. So in the first 30 days, you might have some goals that help you spread that out a little bit that says, okay, I want you to you know, explore our website and give us your feedback on what do you think it says about us? What do you think it, it doesn't say about us? That's a really good point. Like getting a new hire with new eyes is a really useful thing yep. for getting feedback on stuff. For sure. Absolutely. And that's this is the perfect time to get it because they don't have a lot going on. They don't really know what to do most of the mm -hmm. time. They don't have a lot of work that's actually on their plate. And you hit it right on the head, Sam. They've got the freshest eyes out of anyone in the company, and they will be able to pull out those opportunities for us to be even better uh, in those first 30 days. So setting that expectation to say, hey, we want you to observe, to watch, to listen, to take notes, and to openly share your feedback with us. Now, having said that, you got to be open to hearing the feedback. <laughs> <laughs> right. And they might be a little bit nervous about being critical <laughs> at that point. Exactly. Exactly. Um, but you know, it, you could do, you could do that by simply saying, thanks so much for sharing that feedback with us. We'll take that in consideration. Yeah. You're not saying yes to it. You're not saying no to it, but you're keeping that communication open. Um, so that's one way that you can definitely help balance out read this operations manual that's 68 pages long and boring as the day is long and, you know, doing something that's going to help them feel immediately productive and valuable and like they're, you know, a contributing member of the team right away. Well, that's the thing. Like I, I don't start a new job thinking I can't wait to fill out my paperwork and read procedures manuals. I start a new job because <laughs> yeah. I'm excited about the job I'm going to be doing. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I'm thinking about it might make sense to make sure that each day or for the first week or for the first month, like you have sort of an escalating scale of tasks that, you know, anybody can do whether or not they really know the procedures manual Mm -hmm. And it'll feel useful and productive. And maybe it's just tailing people to meetings and, and riding along shotgun while somebody's working on a project. But maybe there's actual productive stuff that you can ask people to do that they don't need to have consumed your entire procedures manual and memorized everything. Absolutely. Absolutely. So while they're filling out paperwork, um, getting some job done, giving you feedback uh, and reading procedures manuals, what are some other goals that you should be having for that time for the first week or month? Yeah. So one of the big things that I think is really important that a lot of businesses don't do until it kind of just happens because the new hires in some random meeting and somebody mentions it is really sharing the overall company vision. Where are you trying to take the company? How does this person fit into that? 
um, getting them excited, getting them bought into the vision. Because if somebody doesn't know the vision, they Mm -hmm. can't help you reach the vision. It's kind of like if you went out and you threw darts blindfolded. You don't know what the goal is. You don't know what it looks like. You don't know where it is. And you can give your best effort, but you're probably not going to hit the target. So we got to help our people understand what's the target and how can I hit it. Also, early skill development for the new hire's role. Nine times out of 10, people aren't going to come with 110% of the skills they need to do whatever job they're hired for. Most of the time, we probably get around 80, 85%. So what are the areas where they don't have any experience or maybe their experience isn't at the intermediate level, maybe it's at the beginner's level? How can we help them develop the skills they need to be highly successful in their role? And then also helping them build a network. One of the things that creates a great deal of employee happiness is being able to connect with other people, whether that's inside the company or outside the company. So inside the company might be assigning them a mentor, um, assigning them someone to kind of partner or buddy with. Uh, At my last corporate job, we actually had a buddy program where every new hire that came into the company was assigned to a peer to help them kind of navigate just the day-to-day. So what this can do for people, Sam, is that it gives that person somebody who's equal to them that kind of sense of comfort and somebody they can ask, okay, now where was the filing cabinet for this again? Or Mm -hmm. how do I access this system without them having to come and and tug on your shirt tail every five minutes to ask you a question? I suppose that many companies you're going to end up having a couple of people who end up being the default ambassadors because they're really good at welcoming new people to the team. Absolutely. And if that's the case, if you have a small firm, I know a lot of the folks listening to this podcast have 15 or less people on their team. Mm -hmm. Having a designated ambassador is a great idea because then each new hire is getting a very consistent um, experience whenever they're joining the team. And you know that they're getting the right information at the right time each time uh, that they come on. And then also building networks externally. Can we get them involved in some networking events? Can we take them to um, a business meeting offsite where they get the chance to meet some other people in different roles? Maybe there's some um, law firms that are kind of partners or they're referral partners or something of that nature. Let's go ahead and and do those in-person meetings or do those Zoom meetings or virtual meetings where we can get them engaging with and meeting new people to really kind of round out their resources. So that way they don't have to just rely on one person all the time, but they can start to feel connected to other people and, and have opportunities to reach out. So we've talked about sort of the first day and the first week in some detail but how do you set you you at the outset you said that onboarding is a year long process so let's mm-hmm. back it up a little bit and so how how are you setting up for the year and what sorts of things should you be doing to continue onboarding going forward? Yeah, I love talking about this because it's really, a, a lot of times people just stop after the first week. Right. <laughs> and onboarding is, is such a more long drawn out process because they're not going to see every single thing that you're doing in your business until you've finished a full year or a full business cycle. So setting 30, 60, and 90 day goals is a great way to make sure that they've got those first three months started off really, really strong. Now, you wouldn't want to set 30 day goals for every employee all the time in your company. Everybody would be exhausted, worn out by the by the continuous goal setting cycle. Right. <laughs> um, but having that new hire with those 30 day goals where it's 
basic things. You've read through the procedures manual. You've met the main players in the company or, you know, main vendors or partners or clients that you're going to be working with. Um, you understand how to access and get into the systems that we use. Then those 60-day goals should be a little bit more of a stretch. Now they should start really learning some of those things that are in their job description that they're going to be doing on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And then within those 90-day goals, now we can transition into what things are they going to be responsible for um, at a deeper level or at a more quarterly-based level, because now we've made it through one, one quarter, basically. Um, and then from there, let's set six-month goals and then a year-long goal. So that way, you're constantly kind of building on what you've already done um, and that you can really help them move along quickly. That's the one thing that a lot of folks in small businesses struggle with is that they don't know how to get their people up and running quickly and being productive and and really being a value to the team. And it's crazy to me, but 60% of companies in the U.S. say they don't set any milestones or concrete goals for their new hires to attain. Huh. Well, if we don't set goals, we can expect people to reach the goals that we've set, which is nothing. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it's interesting too. Like I think about every time I join something, whether it's like a board or whatever, it feels like I often come in, um, somebody orients me a bit. Uh, and then as the longer I'm on the board, the longer I'm in the group, um, I just start taking for granted these things that I don't actually understand because I've, they, they weren't part of my, you know, initial introduction to the thing, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. And I, I suppose like over the first year, like that, those milestones, those check-ins, that ongoing stuff is a way to make sure that Everybody understands what they're supposed to be doing, what they're supposed to be accomplishing, whether they're on the right track, mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And it doesn't have to be, oh, my gosh, I have to set 15 goals for them right. to reach in their first 30 days. Two to three goals is perfect. Don't overwhelm them and don't overwhelm yourself. Um, and then constantly checking in, making that check-in process where you're sharing, you know, hey, I saw that you did this. That was really great. Thanks so much for jumping in there. Or, hey, you know, we're a little off track over here. And, and kind of giving them that in-the-moment feedback, whether it's positive or it's constructive, uh, will help you really create a performance-based culture versus waiting till the end of the year and then laying them out for everything they did wrong and they never even knew all year long that they were doing something wrong or missing the mark. Yeah, Nicola Boot and I talked about that in her podcast about in the context of millennials, you know, because everybody thinks millennials are so different, but but the need for feedback. And she's like, if somebody's doing something wrong, why would you wait, you know, until their next quarterly check-in to tell them that they did it wrong? And yes. it, like, tell them when they can fix it, give people and, and if people are doing well, encourage them. Don't don't leave them hanging uh -huh. out there wondering if they did a good job or not. People can take yeah. it. So give, be constructive, give criticism when it is relevant and and mm -hmm. you'll move on faster. Makes sense to me. Yeah, people are only going to take it wrong if they already have maybe some sort of personality that causes them to be defensive. Mm -hmm. um, or if you're just being a jerk, give them the feedback to them. We don't <laughs> have mean, to be mean and nasty about right. it. <laughs> don't be a jerk. <laughs> I mean, just, you know, that's a good lesson in life for anything that you're doing. But if I came up to you, Sam, and I was like, well, this report was really awful. You did a horrible job. I can't even believe that this is the type of work that you would give me. How are you going to feel? Like crap, right? But if I came up to you and said, hey, this was a good start. Let's talk about some areas where we could improve this report. How are you going to feel about that conversation? Now we're working together as partners. Yeah. One of the, at, at Lawyerist, we have, you know, we kind of have teams. And so like one of the tricks that we use to try and keep the focus on the work not the person 
is mm -hmm. um, we use the Agile retrospective framework, which is three questions that you periodically ask, and we do it weekly. What's gone well with this project or case or whatever it is that you're working on? What, so what's gone well that we should keep doing? Uh, what went poorly that we should stop doing? And what are some things mm -hmm. we should try next time? And that framework, yeah. I feel like, helps keep the conversation about the thing, um, not the people. Because I, it is pretty rare that I ever want to wag my finger at somebody and say, you are bad at your job <laughs> and you're doing things yeah. poorly. Like, sometimes you screwed up. Sometimes I screw up. Like, that happens. But usually we try to frame it as what happened in our system that we were able to make this mistake and how can we fix mm -hmm. it so it doesn't happen next time? Because I don't, it, the, prob the, the problem happened. We can't fix that. And I, I find that those mm -hmm. retrospective questions help keep us focused on that. At least I hope so. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that approach. I think that's a really great approach. It's one that I've used in, in my professional career as well, whether it's somebody giving a presentation and you're giving them feedback on it. Okay, mm -hmm. what'd you do well? What didn't you do well? What are we going to do different next time? Um, or it's a project that they've worked on, or it's a conversation they had with you know, a team member. And, you know, from an HR perspective, I'm coaching them on what they could have done differently or, or handled the situation differently. So I love that approach. I agree. I think it's 100% put the focus on the project, the problem, the situation versus the person. Because at the end of the day, most people want to do a really good job. They don't yeah. come to work every day going, hmm, I wonder how I can just really uh, mess them over today or, you know, how I really going to botch this, you know, client issue today. You know, I mean, most people just want to do a good job. Yeah, If you identify um, somebody who is sabotaging your firm, then by all means, yeah. fire them. <laughs> yeah. That person just needs to go. <laughs> they are, they are just no good all around. Um, but most people, I'd say 99.9% .9 of us want to do a good job. Yeah. Although, although I think there is the, and we, we talked about this a bit in the hiring thing, but there is um, I think it is more likely that you will encounter somebody who's doing the wrong job, right? Like they yeah. aren't, they aren't good at their job, not because they're bad person or they're sabotaging your firm, but because it turns out you've got them in the wrong seat. They're doing the wrong things because that's not what their skills and interests are best aligned with. Um, mm -hmm. and sometimes Aaron and I actually had this conversation about me. He was like, I think you're doing the wrong job. <laughs> and, 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 and that, and you're like, you know what, like now that you say that, I, I think I needed you to say that because that actually helps me see everything that I've been struggling with recently in a more objective light. And you're totally right. Okay. So what's the right job and how do we move me over into it? Um, and I think yeah. that's an easier conversation to have. And when you do have that conversation, it's actually, you're often helping your employee recognize that for themselves, put them in the right seat then and hire somebody else for the yeah. seat. So yeah, absolutely. Because just because they came with 10 years of experience in this area doesn't necessarily mean that that's work that they enjoy doing or that they're great at doing. It just means that they've been doing that somewhere else for 10 years right. and they've probably been miserable doing it there. And nobody ever recognized that they were in the wrong seat, on the wrong bus, going the wrong direction. You know, and, and so that comes back to us as leaders, as, as being good stewards of our teams and making sure that we're recognizing their strengths and where they struggle and, and looking at their role and saying, is this the right role for this person's talents? Um, so I love that you guys had that conversation. I think that's really eye-opening. So uh, when you get to the end of your, your year or whatever period of time and you look back, like how do you know whether you did a good job at onboarding or not? Besides the fact that the employee is still there and everybody's happy with them. 
<laughs> I knew you were going to go there because I, the first thing out of my mouth was going to be, well, is your voice still there? <laughs> um, you know, that's, that's a huge indicator of your success, at least in year one. Um, some other indicators are how have they met their goals and their milestones along the way? Are they doing the job as it's lined out in the job description? Yeah. To a T. So basically, by the end of year one, they should really know their job. If you're into a position and you're a year, two, three years in and you still don't know your job, then your company's onboarding and training plan is not working. Um, so they should know their job by the end of that year. Maybe there's some things that they're still going to have questions about. Maybe it's a report that only happens once a year or something that they only do twice a year. I mean, you know, it takes repetition, right? But all of those monthly things, weekly things, daily things, they should have those nails down and they should be moving along. You should be able to set bigger goals for them so that way they can achieve uh, you know, more sales, more client connections, uh, attend more networking events, you know, create efficiencies or streamline processes. So we shouldn't just be learning the basic things at that point. We should start to then take those things to the next level. And your team should be operating like a well-oiled machine together. Everybody knows their role. They know where this new person fits. They're a productive member of your team. And so a lot of that's really just going to be based on what are your what is your vision? What are your goals? And where are you trying to go next? Um, and, and whether or not you hired the right person for that role. Something just clicked for me, which is that, I mean, everybody wants to make more money over time, but that's premised on the idea that you become more valuable to the company over time, Yeah. which needs to be founded on some very clear shared understandings of here's how you become more valuable to the company over time. Learn these things, mm -hmm. hit these goals, meet these milestones, finish these projects, get this stuff automated so we don't have to, you know, you don't have to spend your time doing it anymore. That's how you become more valuable over time. Yeah. And, and being able to verbalize that and being able to track your progress um, and whether you as the leader track that progress with your team or that's one of their weekly reports that they track and send to you, there should be some sort of, of metric that you have that can show you their progress. Because if we're not measuring things, we don't know whether or not we're successful, right? Mm -hmm. And so part of that you know, ongoing development and support has to be not only setting those goals and those milestones and helping them understand this is what you need to do to get to the next level, whether that's monetary level or it's a bonus or it's a promotion or whatever, but it's also now let's make sure that we're tracking your progress to make sure you're getting there. And if they're not getting there, how do we help them get there? You know, is there a skill that they're lacking? Is there some additional training or development that they might need? And that could be sending them to a seminar at, you know, a local small business development center or, um, you know, one of the national training seminar things that are always, I don't know about you guys, maybe it's just because I'm in HR, <laughs> I get like a thousand of them a week. <laughs> we get fewer and in law, but there are, there are plenty <laughs> yeah. of opportunities to build skills. <laughs> Absolutely. And so those are the things that we need to be looking out for as leaders that we can say, I want to invest in you as long as you want to invest in you, right? We've yeah. got to both be committed to that person's investment in themselves. So thank you so much for being with us today and talking about onboarding. This was cool. And I hope our listeners are able to improve their own onboarding processes over time. And you can find more about Ashley at sprouthr.co, right? That's right. I'm over there <laughs> hanging out, uh, writing blogs all the time and uh, sharing all kinds of tips and information. But I'm going to leave you with one last thing. Cool. Companies with a standard onboarding process experience 54% greater new hire productivity 
and 50% greater new hire retention. So if you're still on the fence about onboarding, I encourage you to take a look at how you can create at least a 90-day experience. If you can't get to the full year yet, at least create a 90-day experience because you will see so much more production and you'll keep those great employees longer. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Ashley. Thanks so much again, Sam. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The Lawyerist Podcast is produced with help from Lindsay Calhoun and edited by Paul Fisher. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you. Oh, 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 o